0: Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed Holy Week to all of you this Monday, April the 11th. I pray you had a great Palm Sunday. For us, it is always Um, Confirmation Sunday as well. So what a joy to hear young people confess the faith for our church, receive the Lord's Supper, and in preparation for the the fullness of who we are as Christians this Holy Week. And for us, we've lined it up that the light of Christ and the fullness of His passion shines on us from Matthew chapter 26 today, as we see Jesus continuing forward to the cross. We see Him before the the council and Caiaphas, and they're, they're, they're kind of asking the right questions. The questions are just not done in faith. Are you the Christ? Are you not? But they weren't looking at it the way they should. They're trying to find a way to destroy him, which is not um, not good. But also, in the ultimate of ironies, God is working through it all for the sake of our salvation. And also, it's very humbling because we see Peter. We see Peter in a position that we can sympathize with. We can understand why he did what he did, but also realizing the gracious God on Peter, and if he has grace on him, he'll also have grace upon us. So as we are full of the, this, we ask the Lord to give us faith, uh, to open up our Bibles, and we put on our Christ goggles for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. LHFmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's word this morning, we welcome for the first time the Reverend Dr. Joshua Jones of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. Pastor Jones, a blessed Holy Week, and welcome to Thy Strong Word.
1: Thanks, Brady. Good to be with you today.
0: So, Pastor, this is our first time together. Um, uh, Tell us about yourself, uh, your, your beloved family, and the work of the saints at Bethlehem in Rapid City, South Dakota.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, so I have a wife named Jamie and uh, two children, Noah and Zoe, and both of them are now teenagers as of a, about a month ago. Um, I served I served at, at Bethlehem in Rapid City my entire ministry. I mm. uh, served my vicarage here and then got called back. Uh, as an assistant pastor for a year and then our senior pastor retired and, um, I tried to fill his big shoes. So, um, good, good people here. Um, uh, the, the Black Hills are wonderful. Um, it's a great place to, to live if you love the outdoors. Um, and, and we like to do a lot of hunting and fishing out here. Um, but that's really kind of the icing on the cake, I think. Uh, the real substance is the people. Uh, the people here have been um, just wonderful uh, to us. They're they're really our our family. Um, one of the uh, real gifts of our congregation is that they're they're very generous. Uh, they take good care of their pastor. I think sometimes when when we leave seminary. Um, I mean, we're we're not quite as humble as we ought to be, but we we think, man, how can God use my gifts to serve His people? And that's true, mm-hmm. um, but we don't forget about the other half that you know, really it's um, the, the call that we have as pastors is also so that God's people can take care of us, and and that's certainly been true for us uh, because our our voice is a very profound ability. Very example. Uh, to be quite frank, uh, it takes a lot to to take care of us well. And our, our congregation really goes above and beyond uh, to, to do that.
0: And so, Pastor, you, I've said, Reverend Doctor, you've done a Doctor of Ministry program. If you could just give us a little bit about the work that you did and, uh, well, the practicality for you and your church um, in that work.
1: So my focus, uh, was on uh, disability ministry and theology. Um, lar- I mean, because of our our daughter, um, I, I think one of the challenges that we have generally as pastors, uh, I think you probably would agree, is you know, who's who's the pastor for the pastor. And that that's something that's always been, I think, difficult to to wrestle with, uh, no matter where you are. Uh, and especially if if you have a child with disabilities and you're very needy and you need ministry who's going to do that and i saw in my congregation um a real desire uh, to want to to love us to bless us and uh quite honestly sometimes they just didn't know how um there's a lot of you know, apprehension uh, that that goes along with uh, people with disabilities sometimes, so uh, fear of, of offending and things like that. Um, but what what I did for my doctorate was um, do some research to, to see how we could better equip the, the saints here uh, to care for not only our daughter, but our family. And the real hope uh, is that that this will be transferable to, to other pastors who have kids with disabilities uh, because it's not obvious who should be ministering to them. Uh, in most disability ministry guides that you read, it's the pastor who should be kind of on the front lines of caring for families, uh, of children with disabilities. But there, there really is no literature at all about when, when it's the pastor who has the family with a child with disabilities or, or even the pastor himself. So um, that, that's kind of the, the void I was trying to fill, um, at least in, in ministry and in academia. Um, and the, the research we did uh, turned out to, to really help us, I think, better understand that just teaching people some very basics about um, who Zoe is, who our family is, what our needs are, um, can be a real blessing to everyone, uh, not, not just to, to Zoe, but then also, in turn, how she might actually be able to bless others. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was good to, to do that because there really hasn't been a whole lot of uh, scholarly research done by Lutherans in the field of disability.
0: Well, and that's just a reminder for me and for, for you, our listeners, is that an opportunity for us, as Jesus tells us, uh, to love your neighbors uh, as yourself. The scriptures are very clear on that. What does that mean for each blood bought person? And that's just another opportunity for us to pray for Bethlehem, um, for your family, and for our own congregations. How can we serve and love each other? And that it's obvious that that would be a blessing not only for your family, but for many others in the church. So, Pastor, as we come to God's Word this morning, can you begin our time in prayer? Sure. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you somewhat
1: somber this week as we enter into Holy Week and we remember the uh, the suffering, the passion, and death of your own dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that as we uh, read your word today uh, that your spirit would be with us uh, and that uh, he would uh, change our hearts, that he would allow us to uh, perceive um, the, the depth of our own sin and cling ever more closely uh, to Jesus. We pray in his name.
0: Amen. Amen. Reminder, if you have any questions concerning our text today from Matthew chapter 26, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, K-F-U-O at K-F-U-O.org. Now, what we're going to start is is to hear all of these words. Now, just a reminder that there's quite a few verses here, but it's also, this is the center of our faith. We're coming into Holy Week. These are the words that happen at this time, and they are at the center of what it means to be a Christian. Um, I did I did mention, I have mentioned before, and is something that has been on the mind a lot as we enter this Holy Week, is you know, we as, as Lutherans, as Christians, we let the cross do the talking. I mean, that's that's what it is. You know, all the action of Jesus going through this shows us the depth of God's love and the lack of, um, well, we don't deserve it, is really what we're looking at. And so, as we see this unfold. We see God's hand for the salvation of his people. So let's begin Matthew twenty-six, fifty-seven, and we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are able, if you are Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Have you not heard this blasphemy? What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it. Now, Pastor, everything is in a context. As we come upon Jesus before Caiaphas, Peter's denial, what do you, how do you want to start us off as we look at this text?
1: Well, whenever whenever we study the Bible, uh, I, I have a temptation um, to to always know more stuff. I like learning, uh, but when we when we approach, especially a text like this, um, I think the text is fairly. Straightforward, and so maybe um, it, it would be good to remember also that it's not always what I get out of it and what I learn, but um, how is the Spirit working mm. in me? Uh, maybe to change my my sinful heart. Um, and when we read narratives, a lot of times we find ourselves identifying with someone in the text. And I think that's natural. Uh, so. For example, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, we have you know, the younger son who, who runs away and squanders everything and then comes back and his father forgives him. Uh, and then we have the older son who refuses to be um, part of the family and holds a grudge against his brother. And of course, the, the always loving father. Uh, and we like to try to identify with, with one of them. Uh, and quite often, uh, I, I, I try to identify with uh, the safe option. So in, in the case of the prodigal son, I want to identify with the, uh, the younger son, right? Right. Uh, right. Not the older son who holds grudges. <laughs> um, so usually we try to go with the, the safe option, but uh, the challenge in Matthew 26 is we identify with anybody in this, in this whole passage. There's no safe option. Um, I mean, you have the, uh, the Sanhedrin, um, they convict and kill the author of life. Mm-hmm. You don't want to identify with them. You have Peter, uh, who denies his Lord or abandons him. Or you have Jesus, uh, who's falsely accused, uh, who's unjustly convicted, who's abandoned by everyone and finally crucified. Uh, there, there's no safe options uh, in this text. To, to be able to identify uh, with any of them, uh, which means um, th- there's there's going to be some uh, squirming in your seat a little bit, and I think that's part of the purpose of this text is to make us squirm in our seats a little bit. Um, how might we be like the, the the religious leaders who who tried Jesus or like Peter? And those are uncomfortable things to wrestle with
0: and so as we look at this like you said it it, it brings some discomfort for us um, and what is a it's good for us to be a little uncomfortable like you said and what would your encouragement be as you read as we hear this week especially uh, the passion account that we can fall off the horse on on both sides of complete despair or Kind of like you, like you said, let's just you know, kind of ignore that part. Uh, how do we faithfully look at this? Any 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 thoughts that you have as we look at these words, but also as we prepare for the rest of Holy Week?
1: Well, I think it's good to be honest. Um, I mean, who are we really fooling if we try to skirt away from our sinfulness? Uh, we might be able to fool ourselves for a time, but we can't fool God. Um, I think one of the one of the things that that I got out of this uh, studying and and reading it again is uh, you know where where Peter ends up. Um, he's he's just denied his Lord. The rooster crowed, uh, and he goes and and weeps bitterly. And I think we could say that he was he was spiritually broken, um, which. If we stay in Matthew, uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, the, the spiritually broken. And that's certainly Peter, and certainly that's me, and probably our listeners as well. But that, that is the, the proper posture and an attitude to have. Uh, in order to receive God's gifts. Uh, we, we don't get a lot of that uh, great news in this text, uh, but we also know the, the ending of the story. Uh, we know that Jesus not only was crucified, but that he was he was raised. And one of the things that he does after he's raised is uh, go and, and restore Peter uh, three times right. for each time that he denied him. So I would say that that is certainly uh, a hopeful aspect of this. Uh, that when we are spiritually broken and bankrupt, um, I think was it Psalm fifty one, um, where where David uh, is confessing his his sin with with Bathsheba, um, you know, broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise.
0: As we and look at this, always, go ahead. Always grace and forgiveness. I love how you brought up Matthew five verse three because when we had Doctor Gibbs on to begin this whole study, he spoke about how the the basic premise of Matthew and how Matthew um, proclaims the gospel really is an understanding of who we are, which is we are blessed as once poor in spirit, and he he used an analogy of a child, you know that who's the greatest in the kingdom, the child. And then he spoke explicitly about that. Matthew is about the unbelievable mercy to unbelievable sinners. And so that really brings that to the forefront, our verses. Now, like you said so well too, you don't read 57 and 75, say amen and go to bed (laughs) because there's there's not a lot of gospel there. um, As far as explicit, We, we, since we know the whole story, um, but boy, yeah, you're right. It definitely does show us. If you're wondering if you're poor in spirit, these verses will remind you that you are, because um, you can't cling to some kind of vain hope, and you can't fake it with God. You can fake it with each other, but you can't fake it with God. So, any anything else before we start digging in? No, I think we can dig in. All right. So, verse 57. Um, we'll go through 61. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as a courtyard and the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus and that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So we have Caiaphas um, mentioned, and a bunch of religious leaders are hanging out and and they are just trying really hard to take Jesus down. What are your thoughts on these first verses?
1: Well, <clears throat> I think it's helpful to understand who these people are.
0: Right.
1: Uh, sometimes we read through and and get you know funny words like sanhedrin. Uh, we're not entirely sure what, what is that what what is the sanhedrin um, how how is Caiaphas's role uh, played with Sanhedrin? How does that relate to um, the pilot, the Roman governor? Uh, and so I, I think unpacking that a little bit would be helpful. Um, so the the sanhedrin is is made up of uh, we hear about Pharisees and Sadducees a lot uh, generally made up of those two groups. Uh, some people believe that the majority of of the sanhedrin were actually Sadducees at the time uh, that Jesus was crucified. Uh, but the sanhedrin we, we think of them as a religious group quite often because they're religious leaders, but uh, first century Israel. Uh, didn't have the separation of church and state like we think about it in our own country. Um, there was a lot of intermingling between religion and politics and culture, um, and we know this at least in part because the uh, the previous Roman governor, uh, Valerius Gratus uh, had removed several of the chief priests. Uh, because we don't know why for sure, but maybe he just didn't like how they operated. But Caiaphas, uh, we we know that he actually was, um, he became the uh, the chief priest in uh, 18 AD and continued on until 36. And Pilate became the Roman governor in 26 and remained in power until 36, uh, the same time that That Caiaphas uh, was no longer high priest. So there's they seem to be kind of appointed um, with some political motivation in mind and the fact that Caiaphas has been uh, he was in office for 18 years maybe told us a little something that he got along well with some of the the Romans. Um, But the other thing that is important here and we get this from John 18 is that the Sanhedrin did not have the authority to exact capital punishment. Um, so they needed uh, the Romans to be able to, to execute Jesus. Um, so that's part of what's going on here uh, in this text is they're, they're trying to one come up with uh, a justification for the Sanhedrin itself uh a, a charge that that will stick that is actually deserving of death for them, but then they also have to come up with something that's going to be palatable
0: to Pilate to be able to crucify Jesus under Roman law. So it's really interesting that to break it down like that, because we do easily just assume what happens in America is how everyone's operated ever separation of church and state, you know, that those things are not connected and that there's not that politics just got really bad in the last 25 years, something along those lines. Well, here's some pretty explicit Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, political moves that are happening. They're trying everything. And we see this in the, in the, in the verses leading up to this as well. It's just like this constant, what can we find about them? What can we do? What can we say? And then they see these words, and I wanted to, to, to look at this, um, is they have these false witnesses come forward, and they say that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And it's like, well, that sounds right, but it doesn't quite, quite sound right. And so I don't know, any thoughts on that part? Because it's like, okay, well, I mean, maybe that's right. I, I don't know. As we look at Scripture, what about that confession that this person said, what they're trying to do?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting that it's it, it's included in in Matthew's gospel because we haven't heard anything about this, right? right. Um, throughout the, the entire book, um, we, we do hear about it in in John. I think as early as chapter two, um, and, and it's essentially, I think, the same, um, destroying the temple and rebuilding in three days. Of course, John tells us that Jesus was talking not about the the, the physical structure of the temple, but about himself, right? Um, <clears throat> I, I think one of the things that's interesting about not just that verse, uh, but a couple that precede it, mm. is that they're seeking false testimony uh, to convict Jesus so that they can put him to death, uh, but there there's disagreement. Um, and I think this tells us something about the makeup of maybe the the attitudes, the understanding of the, some of the individual members of the Sanhedrin. Um, we, we have we, we know this; uh, like Nicodemus seemed to be somewhat sympathetic uh, to Jesus and, and his his uh, claims uh, of who he was. Uh, that a lot of times we paint. know all of the chief priests and um, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law as everybody is out for blood and they want Jesus dead no matter what. And the fact that they can't come to an agreement and that they're actually calling forward witnesses um, and... and, uh, We think sometimes we hear, you know, this is just a a kangaroo court, like they're just doing this for show. And I don't think that's true. They're they're really trying to convince everybody. Uh, But there's maybe a few people in the crowd that um, aren't just out for blood. Uh, Maybe there's a few people in the crowd that are really unsure and uncertain about who this Jesus of Nazareth really is. Uh, there's others who probably are legitimately concerned that, um, you know, they're very pious and faithful uh, in, in the way they've been taught. And they think Jesus is a, a real threat, uh, but they're maybe not sure if he actually deserves death or not. Uh, so the, uh, the comment about the, the temple leads us into uh, well, a little bit further on uh, when Caiaphas tears his robes and, and claims that Jesus uh, uttered blasphemy, uh, because that's really what they wanted. Is um, blasphemy was was capital offense, so that would that would cover their basis in the Sanhedrin of um, feeling justified in in, in handing him over to Pilate to, uh, to crucify him.
0: I wanna I wanna I know I'm 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 excited to get to that point, but right now we need to take our break. We are studying Matthew twenty six with Pastor Josh Jones and we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter twenty-six with Pastor Josh Jones of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. And Pastor, you you brought up that verse sixty-one um, about the false testimony that this man gave; uh, these two men gave. Uh, now leads us to the rest of this and the blasphemy that they are accusing him of. So let's let's read through the verses and get a little more uh, revealing of what you just mentioned. So verse sixty-two. And will continue on. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Son of Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. I'm going to stop there just because that's the part you mentioned before. But they wanted to hear blasphemy, and like it says at the beginning, and they found none. (laughs) They're trying to find reasons, and they find none. And then they hear this, and they're like, oh, come on, give give us something. And it doesn't seem to me to be, I don't know, you think it'd be a little more exciting than what Jesus said, but he did. So blasphemy, what are they accusing him? did they really have a good argument? I'm not sure.
1: Well, um, a lot of people smarter than me, uh, have done some research into what actually constitutes blasphemy, uh, at this time. And there were five things. Hmm. Uh, the, the most obvious one that we typically think about is claiming to be God. Um, but it, it's also pretty clear that being, being the son of God or, or the Messiah, which seemed to be synonymous here, uh, would, would not, um, constitute blasphemy. Um, it would be kind of odd if, if that were true, because then, uh, the, the Jews would always have to put to death their Messiah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, if, if if you're gonna kill somebody because they claim to be the Messiah and the son of God, then well, what happens when he actually comes? you know uh, so I don't think being the being the son of God or the Messiah would not have constituted blasphemy. Uh, another one uh, would be uh, uttering the the actual name of God um, we sometimes call that the tetragrammaton mm. um, the the name Yahweh uh, so following the the second commandment. Um, you know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Uh, they, they took that, uh, too far. Uh, they they were so afraid of misusing it that they, uh, they never used it at all. Uh, they substituted the, uh, the generic name for, for Lord, uh, in, in place of Yahweh, Adonai. Um, so that, that's another one. Um, the third one is profaning holy things. Um, the, the fourth, and this is where I think we get into the blasphemy part uh, that Jesus is actually accused of. Uh, the fourth is threatening the temple, uh, which is oh. why Caiaphas actually uh, stops the proceeding at that point and asks Jesus to give an answer uh, to whether or not you know these things are true. And the fifth uh, is also included in Jesus' answer, and that is uh, in some way threatening or attacking divinely appointed leadership, which would be Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. So um, he threatens the temple, but just so there can be no mistake, um, what, what Jesus uh, answers um, see, what verse is that? Verse sixty-four. Um, sixty-four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of Power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um. Well, that, that's a quote from from Daniel seven. All right. All right. Um. Maybe I'll just read that. Please um, do. Verses, verse thirteen. Um, Daniel sees visions and he says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so by quoting that verse, uh, Jesus is certainly, um, in their minds, the Sanhedrin's mind, attacking their divinely appointed leadership. And coupled with the threat of the temple, well, now there can be no doubt uh, Jesus has uttered blasphemy. Uh, I I think it's ironic, though, uh, that uh, attacking divinely appointed leadership is blasphemy um, because the the Sanhedrin, uh, they're the ones who actually commit blasphemy uh, by attacking Jesus, who was appointed by God uh, to be uh, the heir of all things and have dominion over, over all.
0: And as we look at the great connection, I do encourage our listeners to look up Daniel 7. It's a great connection by Pastor Jones, uh, 13 and 14, that we, it it brings us back to Matthew 25 with all the eschatological discourse from Jesus, speaking about the end. And, you know, that's one of those passages that we should always be keeping handy when we talk about the end, is Daniel 7, that this isn't something that Jesus just made up, that there would be an end times, um, but but it's right there. And Jesus is making, he's connecting the dots. And that's where, you know, well, some people wanted to hear it and some didn't. And God's hand was on it all. So he's <laughs> tearing his robes. He's, he's calling blasphemy. Right now he hasn't got a response yet from the other people. But is there anything else you wanted to highlight about the accusation of blasphemy and the response of, of Jesus?
1: Well, just again, like the, the Sanhedrin needed uh, some kind of charge that would stick to uh, make it palatable for for the Sanhedrin to hand him over to Pilate and, and seek the death sentence. Um, but they they also they needed something that um, would actually convince Pilate uh, that he was deserving of death. Uh, I, I think certainly the the threat to destroy the temple uh, would have been something that Pilate would not have been real wild about because the Romans uh, hated chaos and disorder in any, uh, any form. Um, they, they kind of ruled with an iron fist. Uh, they, they wanted to keep the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, and they did to, did so through uh, through force. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the things that we see in our own world, um, like riots and and things like that that go on uh, these things would not have been tolerable to the Romans whatsoever uh, they would have been stomped out before they even got started and, and so we, we also know from the next chapter that uh, they, they didn't just use that they tried to use many things uh, taking this pilot to do this um, and, and I don't know if he kind of I, I've always thought it's kind of mysterious but Pilot just finally kind of throws his hands up in the air and gives them what they want, right? Um, but uh, yeah. that's what they're attempting to do here.
0: And there's a great scene in this movie, The Son of God. This came out probably ten years ago now. And there's a great scene where there's a whole bunch of Jewish leaders outside um, where the, the the governor's headquarters, and they walk into the walk into the room of Pilate. And this isn't explicitly in the Bible, but I think it captures what you're saying, too, is they go in and say, the chief priests and the religious, the Pharisees want to talk to you. And and, and Pontius Pilate kind of gives this big, oh, <laughs> which I thought was just uh-huh. a great, because a great, that's kind of what they did. They just wore him down, let alone, and later okay. on we'll find out about his wife. Um, saying yeah, nothing to do with that righteous man and everybody. He's just like he's trying to keep the peace, like you said, of Rome, and and it's just not going well. But they're fishing and they're fishing real hard at this yeah. point. So um, yeah, anything else before yeah. we move on?
1: Well, I think it's worth noting that most Roman governors did not seek an appointment in Jerusalem <laughs> because of the Jews. Okay, sure. It was not. It was not the. Uh, posh uh, governorship that anybody wanted. Uh, Sometimes I think I've read before that it was almost used as a punishment sometimes uh, to send people there because it it was very difficult to to get along with uh, with all the the Jewish leaders.
0: Well, let's continue. Let's see the response because he, you know, what further witnesses do you need? Have you not heard this blasphemy? We ended kind of on the edge there in verse 65. Let's read verse 66 throughout. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I do find it interesting, Pastor, and I think this is a good perspective that you given have given to us, is that we hear like they answered he deserves death, but according to what the feel we have from the rest, kind of like you said, all this text, how does this hit us? You know, what is the feeling that we have? Is I'm kind of I'm feeling this. You know, it, it might not be as many people as we thought were yelling these things or he deserves death or were they token, you know, loud people that they recruited and so forth. They want death, but is it everybody? Well, there's some question marks on all of that. But they still have the same, same yeah. thing, you know, the same reality. They want him dead.
1: Yeah, I think it really hinges on um, the, the charge of blasphemy. You know, if, if uh, you know, threatening the temple and the um, authority of God-appointed leaders, um, it, it seems at least plausible that people would agree with this. And, and it's also true that uh, in, in the Old Testament, um, blasphemy did deserve death. Mm-hmm. So, even some of the more pious, um, uh, faithful um, Jews who were in the Sanhedrin w- would have probably agreed with this um, if, if they agreed that he actually did speak blasphemy. Right, right.
0: And so as we look at this we we have about 15 minutes left in our time and so the Peter denying Jesus portion is quite, you know, quite profound. So is there anything else in those first that first section that we have that you wanted to highlight? Oh, we can move on. All right. So we get to this point and and Peter denying Jesus. I mean, we've we've heard it often, you know, it's very striking if you see it in movie form or you remember hearing it on Good Friday and those kind of moments. But once again, as Pastor Jones encouraged us at the beginning, you know, how does this hit you? It, 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 where are we in this story? And, and, and for us, it's very much so this brings us to our knees. So we'll just read the whole thing, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out in the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, "Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times." And he went out and wept bitterly. And Pastor, this you know, yesterday was uh, Palm Sunday for us, and also Confirmation, and it just is striking to me when I see this in the Confirmation, right? And whoever who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. I think that's why this. This part of Peter really hits us to the heart. So, how do you want to break this down for us this morning?
1: Well, I'd like to start with a little bit of archaeology. Nice. Yes.
0: Um,
1: because I think it's it's really helpful uh, to realize like this really happened. Um, it's not just a not just a story. Um, some uh, a few years ago uh Concordia Seminary in St. Louis uh, started a program where they um, they got some some donations to send pastors, future pastors uh, to the Holy Land to aid in their their preaching uh, and their their Bible study teaching and I, I was not fortunate to go. Uh, I don't think they had that when when we went through uh, seminary uh, a few years ago but uh, both my brother and the son of our congregation were able to do that, and one of the places that they went, uh, and both both uh, my brother and uh, uh, Nathaniel Brown, one of the uh, yeah. sons of our congregation, mm-hmm. who's a pastor in your district, yeah, I know, um, I know yeah, yeah, yeah. So both um, Andy, my brother, and Nathaniel um, said the the most. Uh, revealing site that they visited was the house of Caiaphas. And part of the reason why, um, so if you go to the Holy Land, you can actually visit uh, what we believe is this Caiaphas and this text and the courtyard where where Peter actually did this, right? Um, one of the one of the things that they talk about is the courtyard is not very big, right? Uh, Maybe something like 30 by 30. Uh, Hmm. And where Jesus was being tried uh, there, there was uh, windows. Uh, And so they're in very, Peter and Jesus are in very close proximity here. Uh, Peter is likely, I mean, it it says uh, earlier on, I think, uh, the second verse that we looked at in verse fifty-eight, uh, that he was uh, uh, following at a distance, uh, and he went inside, uh, sat with the guards in order to see the end. Uh, so uh, we get this in Luke's account of of what happened, not not in Matthew's, uh, but it says in, in Luke that as soon as Peter denies him the third time, and the rooster crows. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Mm, right. Uh, that Jesus actually heard this happening uh, and could see Peter uh, when this occurred. Uh, and I think that maybe helps to put a more human element to this. Um, maybe even for ourselves when. Like you say, the the confirmation right when when we make vows not to deny our Lord, uh, this is this is really big stuff, uh, and even you know one of Jesus' closest followers fails so miserably. Um, I, I kind of wonder. Uh, what what the Lord's look might be to me uh, when when my rooster crows, you know that that it's no wonder Peter goes outside and, and weeps bitterly. Right. Um, and maybe maybe we we, we have uh, too much of a license uh, to sin to do what we want we don't really take this seriously, that uh, when when we uh, choose to deny Jesus in whatever form it may take, uh, this is a really big deal. Um, it should cause us to feel like Peter did. And too often for me, and probably for our listeners, we don't. Um, we 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 feel like it's no big deal, and it is a big deal. And this is why Jesus died. And it's because of not only Peter's denial, but of my own.
0: And we speak about this as if, and I love how you how you brought that up. Is we kind of have this vision that Peter's like far far away. But there's a very personal reality, and this is, by the way, captured in the movie, you know, Passion of the Christ, that when he denies him the third time, there's that look from Jesus, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. But it's beyond a father or a mother to their children type of look or, or a, a husband and a wife look or something like that. Like, uh-oh. I mean, this is, Peter knows what he had just said. He knows what he and all the disciples said, and the amount of guilt that he would have felt at that point is is utter just despair. There's no way of excusing yourself. There's no way of, of justifying it. There's no way out of it. He knows what's happening, and that's why he goes out and weeps bitterly. So to me, it's almost like some of the worst guilt and shame that I've ever felt. This is probably five to ten times worse. I don't know. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I would agree. Yeah. Um. I think it's, it's hard to truly put ourselves in, in Peter's shoes. Um, I I think the other thing that this whole text is trying to tell us is not, not only, okay, we have the Sanhedrin. They're kind of the bad guys. Well, they, they try to kill Jesus, but now we have one of the good guys, um, who, who earlier um, in the chapter promised he'd never do this. He would, he'd die with him first. And, and now Jesus is left alone. I mean, utterly alone. Uh, thinking about how Jesus must have felt, uh, I, I don't think we, we can fathom. Um, there's nobody. Uh, everybody has left him.
0: And that's where, you know, because we you he- you hear of, In the garden, you know, the garden, we get that feel of he's feeling the anxiety. Um, He's asking that this cup may be passed from him. And so we get that feeling, but we don't really get a good feeling of where he's at at this point. And I think one of the, the, uh, I think Dr. Gibbs's commentary on Matthew kind of says, the king that is alone, which Mm -hmm. is why it brings me back to John a little bit, where, you know, this kingdom is not, you know, not of this world. And so it, it brings us, this is the kind of king that is willing to be left alone for the sake of the whole world, you know, for the benefit of the whole world is something that really strikes a heart. It really strikes my heart. As far as I, as you said, this is the moment where Jesus is truly alone um, because the guy who was a spokesperson has denied you completely. And that, that, that captures mm-hmm. that really, really well. So, any other thoughts on the on the denial? We have about three I have about four minutes left in our time.
1: Well, one of the things that I think about whenever I, I read this text, because a lot of times Satan likes to um, bring our failures to mind and to make us feel guilty that we don't deserve the forgiveness that Jesus promised and won for us. Through his death and resurrection, is uh, wonder what Peter thought every time he heard a rooster crow. And I I certainly feel this for myself. There are some sins in my life that Satan likes to call to mind at inopportune times for me. um, Probably. Opportune times for him that we, we begin to doubt um, that, that why Jesus did all of this was for for Peter and for me uh, when when I just blow it uh, miserably fail uh, as God's child
0: and so. You brought up before the, time, the three times that Peter denied Jesus, and then there's those three times that Jesus addresses Peter after the resurrection. And I think that's important for us as we are about, about three minutes away from our end of our time here. Well, how did Jesus address Peter after this denial? Because that's important, too. We can assume a lot of things. But ultimately, how does Jesus come to Peter later on? Well, I mean, if you look at John's gospel, it's very,
1: very evident there. Uh, Jesus singles out Peter and, you know, asks three times, Do you love me? Um, And then tells him to feed his sheep. Um, In Matthew, I I think we have uh, something a little bit different because it's not just Peter who abandoned him uh, when the, I know we're getting ahead to the resurrection here, but. Go for it. uh, (laughs) Kind <laughs> of feel like there. we Please need you a little there, bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Jesus appears to the uh, to the women, um, he says, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." Uh, and I believe that's the first time that Jesus calls his disciples my brothers. Oh. Um, so something new has now taken place in Jesus' resurrection. And I think the, the, the restoration, in Matthew anyway, as far as I can tell, is uh, the, the testimony of the women to go to Galilee so that they can see Jesus.
0: Pastor, with about 30 seconds left in our time, how would you summarize our text and encourage our listeners, especially this Holy Week?
1: Well, uh, as you think about Peter and the Sanhedrin, how you might fall into their shoes, uh, don't forget about don't forget about the resurrection. <laughs> uh, that this is our hope. Uh, that this is what guarantees our forgiveness, no matter what we have done, uh, no matter what we will do. Uh, always cling to, always cling to our living Lord and Savior.
0: The Reverend Dr. Josh Jones of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Rapid City, South Dakota, giving us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 26. Pastor Jones, have a, a wonderful Holy Week, and thank you for bringing us his gifts. Thank you, Brady. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm your host, Brady and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.